The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. The views expressed in this podcast are not reflective of any organization affiliated with the Student Voting Network. So I'm Jamie Beasley. I am a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. And I have Dr. Tammy Greer here, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. And we are here to bring you all conversation about Georgia and its legislative bill. It's not a bill anymore. It's like it's laws around um, voting. So. Dr. Greer, could you tell us uh, first, like a little background about yourself and then what are, not your feelings, what are your comments on the, <laughs> on the current voting legislation in Georgia? Hello everyone, and thank you for joining, joining us for this episode. Uh, I am Dr. Tammy Greer, Pro, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. Um, I specialize in uh, four different areas of politics, yet I focus on mainly three, and that is comparative politics, U.S. politics, which also includes state and local government, as well as urban politics. I uh, have a strong affinity toward uh, civic education and engagement. Uh, which means that uh, the more that one understands, the more one is engaged. And by being uh, and by understanding, it's not uh, a surface level understanding of civics and political science. It is a deeper understanding as to the connectivity, the interdependency of state and local government with um, federal government, along with the impact that it has on us every day. So um, everyone is a political scientist. You just don't know it yet. And once you realize it, you cannot turn it off. So everything is policy and policy is everything. Um, so just be ready to um, be engaged um, at whatever level is most comfortable for you. So. Um, the recent voter bill um, that is now law in Georgia. Um, so from strictly a political scientist perspective, the SB202 has pros and cons uh, for uh, everyone in the state of Georgia, just like every other bill that becomes law. There are, there are pros and cons, right? There are advantages. There are some challenges with it. That is policy. The beauty of policy is that you can continue to um, add to the benefits of policy once you are engaged. So when it comes to SB202, it has its advantages a lot for the uh, for urban areas when it comes to voting and the expansiveness of voting, particularly on weekends. Um, so we should keep that in mind. It, uh, provides some advantages also for rural areas uh, to allow them the opportunity as well to um, to expand their time frame to the ballot. Um, some would argue that there are disadvantages, which includes um, having the um, the county board of elections to have more control. Um, and then to have state, the state board of elections 
um, and whomever is selected to those positions to have more control over the, the, the local level itself when it comes to, um, when it comes to voting. Uh, there are some things that we have to understand from a basic civic level. Number one, states are sovereign, which means they can make the rules. Um, so if that is the rule, then that is the rule. It's also important to understand that some of the people who may have some challenges with the state um, overseeing the county elections and may have more influence, those individuals that have some challenges with it after SB202 passed were some of the same ones that advocated for the same action prior to SB202 during the 2018 gubernatorial race. So let's take that. Additionally, when it comes to the performance of County Board of Elections, it's important to understand that because some of us do not uh, focus on local politics, those individuals that were in those uh, positions may have been in there for a very long time. And the increase of individuals that live in those municipal areas may have grown and may have grown out of the capacity of those that were in those positions. Yet, because we um, do not really focus on local air, uh, politics, it became overwhelming and it could appear as though that those individuals, you know, did not perform to the level that is expected. That's okay. That's okay. That just means that we need to be more engaged and intentional about who is in those particular positions so that we can make uh, changes to, to those spaces that, that, that need them. So there are pros and cons. I just think, know it um, right I, I was gonna say <laughs> I know think, it. Uh, yeah that was like that I think that was a great um summary if you will of like the implications of the bill because the bill passed right and so we can't talk about so now it's law right we keep calling it a bill it's law so it's now law. um now that the law has passed and we know that state legislatures um pass law if we don't like something about a law then we call our state legislatures and be like hey you know we don't really like what you did there so um, what does that mean for college students? Like, what does, um, what does this, what does this, I keep wanting to call it a bill. What does this law mean for college students? And like, what does it mean for college students to not engage um, either where they go to school or back at home, right? Because I think a lot of students like juggle um, or de trying to decide, you know, should I vote where I am? And then some states, um, have a law where you can't vote where you're in school and then for students who want to participate in voting back at home but in Georgia you can vote where you go to school um, because you have a school address so what does that mean for students who I guess don't engage or decide you know not to engage what does that mean for college students so first let's take a basic uh, lesson on numbers this particular generation and when I say this particular generation, the traditional age of college students is the largest generation of all of the categories of generations. You are the largest. You outnumber <laughs> Generation X. You outnumber um, baby boomers, right? You outnumber these generations. So number one on its face, because you are the largest, that means that your impact 
and your decision to participate, whether it is calling individuals or whether it is to, to vote, has a tremendous impact if, if, if it is done, because you are the largest. Um, so, so you have a huge impact just, just from a, a numerical standpoint. What does SB202 mean for, for college-age students here in Georgia? My recommendation to you is to accept what is and know what the rules are when it comes to voting in Georgia. Know the rules, know the boundaries, teach the rules, teach the boundaries, and operate within. Just because that is the rule today does not mean that it has to be the rule next year. The rules can change depending on who is in elected office. If you change the, the individuals that are in elective office who are more empathetic to your plight, then you can then the law can be changed by not participating um, or by um, only sitting back um, and um, having discussions about the law does not help for the law to be changed. So my recommendation to you is for you to know where the boundaries are teach the boundaries to other people, vote, and change the face of the, the Georgia General Assembly. If you do not change the, the demographics, if you do not change the makeup of the Georgia General Assembly, then the people who are in the minority will continue to rule state level, local level, federal level politics because the majority the majority of citizens in this country are not participating on a state level in order to change um, the makeup of the legislative branch. So we talked a little bit about the legislative branch, but we're gonna talk about the executive, the governor. The governor has you know, incredible powers, especially on the state level. Like if you talk to states or yes, federal senators, they're like, well, I really, I wanna be a governor because governors have this more reach, right? In terms of like a whole state. So can you talk about the implications of um, the governor and, and the control that particularly governors have over education, both um, at the collegiate level and at the K through 12 level? Right. Um, so two things. First, I want to make sure that we are super clear. A bill becomes law because the legislative branch created the bill for the governor to sign into law. So the legislative branch is just as important as the executive branch, meaning if the governor is of one political party, and the legislative branch is of a separate party or a conservative version of the same party as the executive, then the agenda of the governor will not be implemented in terms of law. So the legislative branch is extremely important. And I would caution all of us not to just focus on the governor while the governor has extreme powers that we'll talk about. At the same time, uh, we should focus um, on both, both and, not either or, okay? So um, the governor's power and authority, particularly as it pertains to education, is, is very extreme, especially here in Georgia. 
So if you're listening from another state, please check with your state on the powers of your governor as it pertains to your state regarding this matter. Here in Georgia, the governor, um, there is a statewide position for superintendent of education. Yet the governor recommends that uh, someone be the chancellor of the University System of Georgia, which means that all the public colleges and universities in Georgia are under the supervision of this position called chancellor. There's a board of regents and this board of regents, again, the higher level positions can be appointed by the governor and thus the public higher education system in Georgia um, is, is, is controlled by those that the governor deems appropriate for those jobs. Um, when it comes to the state school board here in Georgia, the governor also has that ability. So when it comes to items pertaining to, I don't know, this particular theory that everyone is talking about that I refuse to call it by name because it doesn't really exist for K through 12, that particular theory is in the space of those of us um, in education, yet it, it does not exist in K through 12 education, yet to keep pushing it and to skew what is meant by that particular theory um, can have some impact on what history is told in terms of accuracy, in terms of who the victor is, because there's always a victor in history, who, um, who has created oppressive laws, right? And, and even if we're not using oppressive as, as a word, if we're just noting what is without using the adjective, that can have an impact on uh, how, how history is taught in K through 12, how social studies period is taught in K through 12, an impact on the public colleges and universities, you know, how again, history is taught, um, which for colleges and universities, if you pack um, a space that is um, in favor of or allows for the a governor's ideology to skew education, you run against academic freedom, the ability to have certain textbooks or certain literature to be provided as readings. Why do we have fiction um, as part of education? Because fiction allows for us to empathize with other people. Um, seemingly, if we have um, uh, books that has factual information. All we want to know are the facts. The way that you get people to empathize with a group of individuals that are different from them is by giving them texts, which could be literature, um, that have different uh, characters of different ethnic backgrounds, racial, socioeconomic, gender, to allow for us to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of another so that we can have more empathy as individuals. And hopefully those of us who grow up to be in political science and other spaces or, or elected positions can have empathy when it comes to another so that when we create policy, policy can be empathetic and not just skewed to one particular ideology. So when we have individuals 
when it comes to voting, who says that voting doesn't matter? Who says voting doesn't matter? Because both of those candidates running for a particular position are the same. They're not the same. They are not the same. If you have an individual who is clear on restricting the educational opportunities, and when I say educational opportunities, I mean the ability to expand one's mind and ability to learn and to see beyond themselves, their own community, that people like them. If that is restricted, then the ability to have policy to govern others that are different from you, um, to be able to appreciate other cultures, other individuals, and the um, the the skills that they bring to the table can be missing because we have elected individuals who do not want those opportunities to be seen through the young people, through the children, through the young scholars. And so where their brains are open to all of these opportunities. And then once they become, you know, older adults, there can be a lack of um, vision beyond themselves because we have stepped out or put ourselves on the sideline and have refused to be in the game where we get to elect individuals who see our who can see beyond you know themselves and to look at the broader public. Yes, if, for all you all who are listening, you should um, read George Orwell's Nineteen Eighty Four. Um, very scary times that we're living in where, you know, we can't, we can't um, have books that are like historical fiction, but they're based on facts, right? They, they create characters, like you said, that um, their life circumstances like actually happen, but because it makes a certain population feel a certain way, it, it becomes, um, it's like, it's unnecessarily divisive, right? It's just, you know, if it doesn't make me feel good, I don't want to hear it. And that's the society, you know, that we have created. Um, but it becomes very dangerous, um, especially in re- in regards to education, because like you said, children are very malleable, right? Um, you can introduce children to possibilities and, you know, that can, it can really, you know, take hold of them. But that is also a time where like where children are young, their imagination is expansive, right? And so we're talking about, you know, children are our future. We want them to be as expansive as possible and to have multiple different perceptions and outlooks on situations right and perhaps to turn this you know wicked world around in, in some ways right and then to that point um the significance of school board members and the incredible power that school boards have i think it, especially here in georgia because we're going to keep it to georgia georgia i think the last few years i would say since 2016 Georgia has shown like all of its size, right? I think Georgia could be like a leader in the South when it comes to like progressive politics. I'll put progressive in quotations, right? I think because we flip-flop so much, right? But that is indicative, the flip-flopping is indicative of the changing demographics and also like the possibilities of, you know, what the South could look like, right? All of these um, different ethnic groups are moving back to the South, so the reverse migration, and it's changing politics. And what does it mean, you know, on the local level um, to have control of a school board in a changing political environment? Could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So um, what's fascinating is 
conservatives tend to conservatives are fantastic because they see the bigger picture. Right. And so uh, please um, mind your feelings until I continue. Conservatives are fantastic in seeing the bigger picture because um, there is a clear understanding of federalism. There's a clear understanding of the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. There is a clear understanding that state and local uh, politics um, have a, um, a, a, a greater impact on individuals um, as opposed to the federal level, right? So um, the phrase that's always um, attributed to Tip O'Neill, um, uh, local, um, all politics is local. So in this, in this space, what we understand is, um, when I say that conservatives see the bigger picture, is that conservatives understand that in order to have long-lasting, long-lasting, again, long-lasting policy, you start from the bottom up, right? And it is a conservative effort to be persistent, diligent, and constant at every level of government. So now conservatives are openly challenging individuals for school board seats. Um, they're using at this moment the pandemic as the foundation for them to change, to quote unquote, change the school board, which means that um, when it comes to some of the policies around education um, can be changed by the school board particularly as it pertains to administrative functions, how schools are zoned, who gets to go to what school, how much money is associated with the schools. Um, who is the superintendent? The superintendent of your schools is hired by your school board. So if your school board is, is, um, is, is at one particular extreme of the ideological spectrum, then that school board can then choose who becomes superintendent. Depending on your, um, your state, your superintendent has control over your individual schools, which means they have influence on who becomes principal, who becomes vice principal. What is the focus of the school? Again, how much money does the school receive? Um, when it comes the school board at the state level as well at the local level, you know, can have um, influence on how the school itself is, is operated. And so once we have a full appreciation of the initial touch of education for the children, then we can have an understanding that um, who is on a school board matters. And then how our children are educated stems from the school board, what the children get to learn, what the children get to read, how much money is coming to them. Can they have field trips to go again to museums and to other spaces where they can see different? If we uh, don't allow for these opportunities, again, we're creating um, an environment to where we are not encouraging, we are not teaching critical thought. We are not encouraging or teaching intellectual curiosity. And if we do not have intellectual curiosity 
then what happens is that the the children grow up to become college students and adults, right? Because you're both, and who um, are not curious about information to which they are told. So they don't question the information they just accept. And the reason they just accept is because they have been trained not to ask questions. They have been trained to only accept the information that is presented to them and not to be able to question the why and the how and the impact onto others. So it's critical for us to be able to um, understand the depths of our participation and or lack thereof and the long-term impact of being silent. Wow, the last part really resonated with me about not being curious, right? I think um, if you are in a higher ed institution, you should inherently be, you know, inquisitive and very curious about any and everything that's told to you, right? I think um, when you were talking, it made me think about bless their heart teachers k-12 teachers during the pandemic right um like it was no winning with like it was the teacher's fault because it was a pandemic like that <laughs> that's what it sounds like in a lot of ways right but what you are describing um the treatment of teachers of course like the federal government has an impact on that but very much like how states dealt with their teachers was um predicated on the governor and the legislative body of the state um, more recently, I saw a report in California, you know, Californians love a recall, okay? They will recall you <laughs> in a heartbeat, right? And so more recently, they're recalling their school board um, members because I, um, one of the citizens said, well, they're more concerned about renaming schools than actually coming up with, you know, COVID protocols, right? So I think... Um, I think during COVID, like we really got to see the implications of not participating or limited participation on the local and state level um, when it comes to like how teachers behave, the resources, right, that teachers get, the resources that students get, um, the extra like help that comes in or that could, you know, come in. Um, for students, and I think um, students who are studying, you know, early childhood education now, bless your heart, um, you know, middle school education, high school education, anyone who wants to be a K through 12 teacher, you're, you should be laser focused on education policy right now, and just really be reminded at all times when you read things that federalism exists first. First and foremost, federalism exists. And be laser focused on like what your states are doing um, about education policy, especially moving forward. Because if we're being honest, I think at the K through K through 12 level, there's going there needs to be significant um, assistance. Um, what's another word I'm looking for? Because essentially there, the two years that have passed, there have been a lot of students who have significantly fallen behind, right? Because of various reasons, right? Like technology issues, you know, home environment issues, you know, all the things that people have been discussing. I think all of those points are valid. All of those points are very valid. But now that students are back in the classroom, it'll be interesting to see how states cope with deficiencies moving forward. And that stems from how states and localities deal with education, right? Um, I think we could see 
kind of what that looks like with no child left behind because truly some children have been left behind right so I think it's no on, on the federal level right well and it's also the pandemic highlighted what teachers have been saying all along right all along teachers have been noting these deficiencies yet when the pandemic came it exacerbated right it lifted the veil of what these deficiencies are and so now no one quote unquote can hide from them anymore that's where you have number one these schools didn't have technology most of them right these babies were not learning to use technology right some schools the babies were sharing a a piece of technology because it didn't exist you had um, schools who still don't have adequate internet capability you had schools that let's be honest shared a nurse with one or two other schools nurses in schools was not a regular thing school counselors in schools was not a regular thing. This is not the fault of the teachers. What this is the fault of is a continued, um, a continued reduction in the budget for education over the course of 20, 30 years where money was taken out of schools such that PE became optional after fifth grade where um, school counselors and, um, and nurses, there was no budget in there for them. So those schools did not have them. So schools have bared the burden and teachers in particular of being the counselor, right? They have, they have bared the responsibility of being a part-time nurse. They have bared the responsibility of trying to figure out how to educate the whole child on a penny budget. So let's be clear, it is not the teachers in any of this. Parents, I can empathize with you. It starts with local school boards and it starts with who you put in as state superintendent, who you put in as governor, who you put in as state legislature, because that responsibility of the lack thereof in local schools is the responsibility of those of us who are of legal age, who have the ability to vote, and we are not putting in individuals who have a focus on our children, not just the rhetoric on our children. While you were talking, it made me think of... um students who are in school for education who want to be K-12 teachers. Now, this perhaps may be an episode in itself, what I am about to ask you, but I think we should touch on it. Can you talk about the significance of participating on the state and local level when it comes to this idea of student loan forgiveness? And what does that mean? What What does student loan forgiveness mean for a state? And how does that process play out um, from the federal government to the states? Let's be clear. Student loan forgiveness already exists. It just exists in different forms. So, for example, here in the state of Georgia, if you want to um, go to medical school or nursing school um, and then you create a contract with the state of Georgia, where you would go to a rural area that is a healthcare desert 
and you work there for a certain period of time, your loans will be forgiven. If you go um, to school in the institution of higher education and um, you major in education um, and you then go to become a teacher in a public school system, whether it is at K through 12 or whether it is at um, a public university or college, after a certain period of time, you still have to pay some loans back, but after a certain period of time, your loan is forgiven. There are opportunities within your state. So please check with your state to see what those options are for student loan forgiveness. So um, if you work for the federal government, depending on the position that you hold with the federal government and you hold a particular position, you could have student loan forgiveness. There are opportunities there. Um, so we have to be clear as to what you mean by student loan forgiveness and for which particular industry. It's one of those spaces where there is an assumption that if going to a place of higher education and if it was free, that people will flood higher education. That is the thought process. And if um, this happens, then what you tend to do is you tend to have increased industry, more white collar jobs. Uh, the thought process is that you would um, have a more educated state to where industry will flood that state which will raise the salaries of those in the state, which will generate more income through taxes for that state, which means, which means, which means, and that sounds fantastic. The premise though of that is that if education, higher education was free, then people will go. A county in Tennessee, I forget which one, tried this, did not have a significant increase in those that went to the public college to get an advanced degree. You can get one in like physical therapy, dental hygienist and these. There was not a significant increase in those that enrolled in it. So I appreciate the conversation. I am unclear on the specific ask because student loan forgiveness is very general. What particular industry are you asking about? Because most industries are covered. And, you know, what does that look like? So let's put some meat on that bone. Let's get some specifics surrounding it and tell me what that means. Tell me what that means in the, in, in the specific sense, such that the advocacy around student loan forgiveness can be clear because it will be easy for someone in elected office to say, your state already does that. So what else do you want? So let's be clear about what that looks like. I bring that up because, um, I mean, this conversation can transfer to many, 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 many topics, right? That people um, want to see change. Um, and I was having a conversation earlier with my CVP um, folks and um, I was talking to them about the initiatives that we have on our campus, and, and we largely center our efforts um, around structure and function of government, particularly yes. at the state and local level, because when we're having these conversations, you know, defund the police, student loan forgiveness, climate change action now, 
I don't know what those terms mean. What right, did what do very, they mean in real life? <laughs> right. They're very broad and very mm-hmm. like not specific to state. And so it's almost like it's a hamster wheel, right? It's yes. like and then we're directing our efforts in the wrong position or to the wrong, you know, entity, and then we get fatigued and then we just feel like nothing is working. Well, if you are, you know, swinging as hard as you can at, at the wrong target. Or nothing, right? or, or nothing. nothing mm-hmm. You are going to get fatigued because you are grossly misinformed, and it causes um, it causes anxiety and it causes just stress, but it's unneeded, right? So I wanted um, this episode to serve in the capacity um, that we are educating about function and structure and specifics of the importance of state and local government. Because we know that this is a national organization, but the conversation that we're having now is very specific to Georgia. And so what I want the listeners to do is to go engage with what your state is doing, right? That varies by region too. And of course it varies by state, locality. I don't even want to call like any state like more progressive than others because what does progressive even mean, right? Um, So I think this is my charge, you know, to the listeners to go to see what kind of um, initiatives are um, being offered in your state for student loan forgiveness? Um, how can you be more involved? This is more, this is important. This is very critical because we do not want to reinvent the wheel. How can you be more involved with initiatives that are already in existence, right? That already do the work because we tend to like want to go off and do our own thing to the side when most of the organizations that already exist and have very deep ties to communities and other institutions, they need hands, right? They need more brains. They need just like more people to dedicate time and energy to their cause. And so as a college student, you know, some of them pay, some of them don't. Um, But as a college, you know, student, it's important for us to um, give our services, right? Like give our time because it's also a place where we can you know, sharpen the skill set that we are supposed to, supposed to, that's what we're doing in college, getting a skill set, not partying, right? Sharpening (laughs) the skill set that we learn in the classroom, right? For like real life. And hopefully you all want to go to, you know, grad school, the people that are in grad school that are listening, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to sharpen your professional skills, um, but to go, you know, see what's already going on. That's that's like low hanging fruit and like a very kind of short ask. See what your what your institution is doing, and if they're not doing something, charge them to do something, right? So, Dr. Well, Greer, um, go go ahead. Yep, I was going to say that. Um, you know, earlier when I said that this generation who are in college now, uh, traditional college age students, um, are the largest generation. I want us to sit with that for a minute and to understand that the policies that baby boomers are creating, who are still the majority of office holders in state and um, um, federal level, they are going to be long gone while those policies that they are creating that benefits them, they will be long gone and those policies will still be negatively impacting you. You are literally, you, your generation is literally paying for the, to benefit baby boomers. You are paying for that. 
And it's important for you to put that in perspective that once they are gone, you are still paying for it. And if you are the largest generation, what are the charges, the actions, the specific policies that you are looking for that will begin to make a shift to where the cost to which you are paying and that you will pay is lessened. So not participating means that those policies will continue, will continue to impact you when you become the ages of the baby boomers. So let's, you know, take a moment to reflect on that. And let's take a moment to fully appreciate that the inaction of your generation means that you will continue to be paying for this, you know, into your 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, you know, that's that's unacceptable. It should be unacceptable. And if nothing else touched you um, in this episode, hopefully that did. And then you can understand that, again, you are going to be living with decisions that other people made for you. And you'll be paying for that for a very long time. And so I, I implore you deeply um, to think about that and, and to make that your charge to change. That was beautiful. And on that note, we are going to leave y'all up to marinate on these. We gave you many charges, so pick one. And <laughs> thank Dr. Greer for taking the time to explain these things to us and not glossing over them. Like we typically, you know, just hear kind of in passing in the media. Um, so we really appreciate your time and your explanation to everything. And we hope to have you back on soon. Yay! Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Okay, mm-hmm. see you listen or not see you talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> To get involved with the Student Voting Network podcast, just email us at svncast at campusvoteproject.org. One more time, that's svncast at campusvoteproject.org. Thanks for listening and keep organizing.